The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke 23, verses 26 through 56. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's word. As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals, who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into, my, into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It is now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you be to God. You may be seated.
Let's pray as we begin our time in studying God's Word. Father, we come to you this morning and give our attention to this most a significant of events. Lord, in its reading, it is heavy. And so, Lord, I pray that we would sit with that heaviness, but also, Lord, we would experience your grace. We praise things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I want you to think with me for a second. If someone were to ask you the question, what has been the most important medical milestone since 1840? What has been the most important medical milestone since 1840? What is it that you might say? This question was posed to the readers of the British Medical Journal in 2007. The reason they chose 1840 is because that was the first year of the publication of this medical journal. Now, in your mind, you might have an idea. You might be thinking very specifically, but the answers, the the results that they had were uh, in, in much broader strokes. Number three was anesthesia. Praise God for anesthesia. If you've ever been to the dentist and had a cavity filled or even some greater procedure, you are grateful for the Lord's provision of anesthesia. Number two, antibiotics. Praise God for penicillin. Praise God for medicines. Praise God that, can, that we can take uh, orally uh, and intravenously those things that help our bodies fight off what they wouldn't otherwise be able to fight off. And so that might leave you asking the question, well, what was number one? And what these readers found and what the journal found is it was something that they did not expect. Sanitary revolution. Sanitary revolution. What they are talking about is it encompasses sewage disposal and the methods for securing clean water. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, we live in a world where we go and we go to water fountains and we turn on our faucets and we really don't ever think about clean water. We do our business in a cooling room and it goes away from us and we never see it again. But according to statistics, in 2016, and I imagine these are pretty true for today, a billion people in our world lack clean water. And nearly a billion people also uh, suffer uh, because of the clean water from various ailments that are a result of not having proper sanitation removal. Now, I, I lead with that because this is a huge situation for our world. Things like uh, roundworm and hookworm and cholera are all diseases and parasites that are caught from improper sanitation. In much of our world, and these billion or so people, they live in spaces where people openly do their business, to, to save you some of the uh, less than ideal terms, out in the open. The, the communities and other world health organizations have sought to, to step in these, um, uh, into these environments and into these communities to order to build latrines. What they found in Bangladesh 
when they had built these latrines, is that they asked the, the, the inhabitants of the town why they didn't use them. And they said, you want me to do my business in something that's nicer than my house. They didn't understand what was going on. And what these um, World Health Organization workers and others found is that you, you can't quite appreciate the solution until you comprehend the problem. And so these various workers, and, and they, they tried to move into these communities with, with a, a particular initiative, the community-led total sanitation. It was a shocking process. And the reason it was a shocking process is that they had to get these everyday men and women who were going about the rhythms of their life to see something in a different way. And so what they began to do was to move into these communities in Malawi and Bangladesh and other parts of the world. And, and then the leader, the lead on this particular initiative, would simply go in and ask questions. Where is it that you do your business? Where is it that people go and do this? And they would go to those places and walk through the various villages. Where else do people do this? What if it's raining? What if you have a stomach issue? Where all do you go? And then the next question. Well, as they approached some of these spaces and the smell was strong and pungent, they would say, are there flies all over the place? And they'd say, yes. Well, well what about these chickens that are, that, are, that are eating this stuff and eating the food here and the other items? Uh, do you eat those chickens? Well, where else do you do your business? And as they began to explore this, they, they came up with a, something of a game for the children who were gathering. They gave the children yellow chalk, a powdery substance, and they said, we want you to run through the village and put this yellow chalk everywhere you see someone's business. What you might imagine is a completely dusted yellow village. The health sanitation worker walked over to one of these places, dusted yellow with chalk. He plucked a hair from his head, he leaned down, he brought it through the business, and then he took a cup of clean water, and he just put it in there and swirled around, and he offered it to some. He said, well, would you drink this? And they said, no, it's filthy. Why would we drink that? They said, well... Why do you think it's filthy? Well, because you just put somebody's business in it. And what this health sanitation worker began to do was, was to address this concern about the, the way that they were approaching sanitation and not uh, using the latrines that for years these people had been getting sick because they've basically been drinking and, and eating each other's business. And it was in that moment, that shocking moment, that, that revelation that, that grabbed these people out of their lethargy that they began to see and comprehend the problem. And for the first time, they began to appreciate the solutions that these organizations were offering them. What ended up happening is that the... Um, open uh, doing of the business process decreased from 34% to 1%. And in, in, in virtually 
months, they had cured communities that had been sick for years. You see, we come to a passage in Scripture, and what we find is that there's something shocking in it. There's something we may not like in it. We talk about the cross in churches. We wear it around our neck. We, 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 it is an emblem. But how often do we really sit and look at it and consider its meaning? Now, where I'm going with this is, is, is essentially, in order to understand the cross, we have to comprehend the problem. And in our world, the problem is politically incorrect. It is not good for your self-esteem. It is, as it's been told, not a good method for building a church. What the Bible says the problem is, is sin. And sin and its reality is disgusting. And until we understand sin, until we understand our sin, until I understand my sin, until we understand the problem of sin, we will continue to suffer physical, emotional, and spiritual sickness. And it is this that's been going on for years. In all honesty, I approach this passage. We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke for a year. I said, didn't we just do this a, a month ago at Easter? I found myself wanting to run to the, to the resurrection. I wanted resolution. I didn't want to step into the tension. I, I was adverse to the conflict and what this was trying to address in my own heart. I considered my own weak. And what if someone were to give kids a fun game with yellow chalk and to walk around my world and following in my wake and to dust every place where a sin had occurred? What would my life and my story of this last week look like? You see, I didn't want to step into this passage because I didn't want to look at my sin. Through the work of the Spirit, He has called me into this place to a greater comprehension of the stuff in my life, the business in my life, so that He could bring about the beauty of the gospel to work out transformation. So what I want us to look at first is the problem. Sin, this politically incorrect word, what we find is it is a major disruptor of God's good order. Sin is a major disruptor of God's good order. What it tells us in the beginning is that God created all things good, even very good, in Genesis 1 and 2. And then in Genesis 3, we see our first parents, Adam and Eve, reject God's word. And deny Him as king and disobey Him. And in that, sin enters into the world and violates God's good and very good creation. It begins to to institute a, a process of chaos. And this is something we don't fully take to heart. Because we can't comprehend perfection. Think about it for a moment. You're in the garden. You're just on a Zoom call. Watching these events unfold. Adam and Eve take of the the fruit that they were told not to do, disobeying God's word. 
and the first leaf falls from a tree. The first act of violence intrudes into God's creation. Things begin to decay. Things begin to be corrupted, be corrupted by sin intruding and bringing about disorder and disrupting God's world. Where there had been joy, pain enters. Where there was wholeness, we now have a fracturing in brokenness. Where there was delight in relationships, there's now hardship and suffering. Where there was life, we begin to transition towards death. In that, we find the problem. And in that, when we look at the cross, that's what we must consider. Because in getting to the the resurrection and getting to the empty tomb, we get the victory. But if there is no sin, then Jesus died on the cross in vain. You see, what our sin tells us is there is something important about what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing for creation, and what Jesus is doing for you, and what Jesus is doing for me. And in that, that is the goal today. That we would sit, and we would look at the cross. And in the time that we have, we would keep looking at the cross each day in order to appreciate God's solution for the disruption and the chaos that sin has brought to our world. That what we find when we look at the cross is that this is God's answer for the world's pain and suffering. It's injustice and violence. It's evil. Because in it, Jesus defeats sin. So let's look at first, as we see the cross, what we find is the cross points us to the incomparable uniqueness of Jesus. The cross points us to the incomparable uniqueness of Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians, considering this reality of Jesus, he said, Have this in mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." The first thing that we consider when we are pointed in considering the cross is we see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, this world comes to a, a, a decision point. We have to answer the question, who is he? And this is what Luke has been so diligently trying to lay out in an orderly fashion, in an orderly fashion for all who would read this inspired account. We're to see Jesus, the Word made flesh, the one who spoke all things into existence by the power of His Word, the one who saw the brokenness of the world and entered into it, the one who comes about to establish a kingdom, a kingdom that will have no end and fulfillment of God's promises, that He is the culmination of those things. 
And what we saw last week is we saw people raise up swords and try to bring about a kingdom in the way they thought it should come. What we see in this passage in Philippians is it tells us that Jesus comes as a servant. Jesus comes as a servant. His servitude is the deepest expression of obedience and humiliation we find anywhere in the world. Jesus, the immensity of who He is as as being God, takes on flesh. He becomes perfectly human. And in that, He submits Himself perfectly to God's law and He obeys it. Jesus does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And in doing what we can't do for ourselves, He humbles Himself even to the point of going and dying on the cross. He had the authority. He had the power. He spoke stars and and held them in the palm of His hands. He he was immense in who He was and, and beyond anything that we could imagine. Yet when they beat Him and spit on Him and mocked Him, through the travesty of justice, He didn't raise a finger to right Himself. And he had every right to do that. Jesus became a servant. A servant of God, certainly. But a servant of you and I. Because he came and tended to our needs. To bring about restoration and healing from the wounds that we've suffered from sins and the ways that we've been made sick. He came to make us whole. Not only do we see Jesus as a a servant, we, we see him as our substitution. We see him as our substitution. Jesus, in his humiliation and his obedience, he shows us what true love is. True love is stepping into a situation and seeing a need that is bringing about suffering and pain and difficulty and abuse and is wrecking someone's life. And they move in such a way to take it upon themselves no matter the cost. Jesus saw the way that sin was bringing about disorder in his world. And in order to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, he goes and dies a death in our place. He drinks the cup dry. So that when it's given to us, there's nothing left to drink. He satisfies the fullness of God's wrath. So that there's nothing left to pour out on us. He endures the fullness of the penalty for our sin. Being isolated and separated from God. To the point where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that, so that we would be made whole. And restored to his father. You see, when we look at the cross, we see the incomparable uniqueness of Jesus. Because a quick study of comparative world religions, you will not find anyone in any facet similar to our Savior. Consider those whom you know, and even the most noble of individuals, someone who would do this to this extent. We write stories of those altruistic behaviors but there is no one who compares with jesus 
Because in the cross, what we find is the depth of suffering meeting the beauty of God's love. Where Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. From there, what we see in looking at the cross is that the cross gives weight to the heaviness of sin. The cross gives weight to the heaviness of sin. We look into our world, we consider the events of just this past year. Those travesties of justice, those acts of violence, those riots, the the racism, the, the, the white lie, the raised voice spoken in anger, the backhanded comment that was really intended to hurt someone. You see, we often focus on the big things. And we say, thank God I didn't do those big things. But if we consider our lives and the the dusting of the yellow chalk everywhere we have gone out and sinned against our neighbor, sinned against our loved one, what we find is that we are sitting and, and pervaded in a world pervaded by this colored chalk. Our world is marked by deep hatred, systematic violence, Disease, war, betrayal, abuse. And you could fill out that list. Our world indeed has a tremendous problem. People offer solutions, but what we find is that rarely do they make any difference. Maybe for a moment, but not for long. Because sin sweeps back in. We see it in the world And it's easy when we see it in the world to to make a big deal about that thing over there. But when we look at the cross, what it wants me to see is the problem of this thing in here. What's the way that I've judged my neighbor? What's the way that I raised my voice with my children? What's the way that I have spoken harshly to someone? Do I understand my sin? You see, that's what it means to look at the cross. Yes, Jesus is making all things new. He's also dying for the sins of this pastor. And he's doing that in a way that I would understand the reality. That sin is an intruder and does not belong. And sin is not, does not have my best interest at heart. And sin is at work in my life. And I need a Savior too. And so what the cross does is it, is it shows us that our wages, everything that we've earned, isn't making this a better place. And that we need a Savior. And so we see when we look at the cross, there, there are many things we could see, but these are my three from this week. We see the incomparable uniqueness of Jesus. We see the heaviness and the weight of our sin. And then we see how God reveals the depth of His love and the beauty of redemption. The depth of His love and the beauty of His redemption. When we consider the cross, when we look at that, we see Jesus, the one who truly was innocent. The one who never sinned, who never disobeyed, who honored God with His heart, soul, mind, and strength 
every single moment of every single day. He was in perfect communion, never out of step with what God had commanded him. He truly loved his neighbor as himself. He had their best interests. He pursued them. He cared for them. He was kind. He saw them as those created in God's image, and he dignified them because they bore the mark of his Father. When we consider Jesus and his innocence, that he had committed no treachery, we see that he was treated as a traitor, that they had released a, a, a felonious uh, insurrectionist instead of releasing the Savior. That he underwent the most humiliating, excruciating, painful form of punishment in the world at that time. And when I consider that, it changes me. Knowing that I am loved in that way by the God of the universe changes me. Knowing that he understands my suffering, wanted to spare me even greater suffering, and is even now with me in the midst of my suffering, that changes me. You see, when we look at the cross and we see the depth of God's love, we, we understand the, the gravity of sin. And in order for God to satisfy an infinite debt, He has to offer an infinite substitution. This is what Anselm of Canterbury in the 12th century began to figure out. And his understanding of the, the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. That there was no one else that could have done this. But Jesus did it for sinners. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a book that my girls began reading for their summer reading, C.S. Lewis gives us a picture of this. Through these words of Aslan, after his death and resurrection, Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. C.S. Lewis writes these words in a beautiful children's allegory to point us back to the cross, to point us back to the work of Jesus, to point us to God's solution for our sin. So what do we do with this? It's a great question. First, keep looking at Jesus. Keep looking at the cross. Martin Luther said, I need to hear the gospel every day because I forget it every day. I needed to sit a month after the Easter celebration with this passage and the Lord knew it. And He tended to me in my situation. And from there, what I have learned is what he calls each of us to do, and that is to trust more deeply. 
Trust that whatever it is we're going through, whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, whatever clickbait that we look at on our various social media that, that, that causes us to stir up at the, the various ills of the world, that we can trust the Lord who has a solution, that loves us deeply, who takes care of the, the, the weight of sin by sending us the incomparable Jesus. From there, when we consider those things, it should bring about our transformation. The more fully we trust, the more fully we lean into His grace and understand that we can't do it ourselves, the more God's Spirit applies His Word, shows us the beauty and brilliance of Jesus, and we are transformed. He takes those who are violent, and makes them peaceful. He takes those who are broken, and He makes them whole. He takes those who are suffering, and He turns their suffering and mourning into joy. He takes those who are dying under the the philosophies of this world and the, the pursuits of this world, and He gives them life everlasting. He transforms us through looking at the cross. And finally, as he, in my alliteration that Bill always gives me a hard time for, in trusting and transforming, he causes us to tell. Friends, this is amazing news. And he calls us to go out and, and live it out in the presence of others. Show them what the fullness of transformation looks like and tell them about the beauty of the work of Jesus on the cross. The beauty of the one who loved me enough in my filth and in my business to wash me clean and make me whole. What we learn by looking at the cross is there is nothing in our lives so great, so immense, so painful, so heartbreaking, so infuriating that Jesus hasn't done something about it. And so just as the sanitation revolution that came about was the greatest milestone in the history of the British medical journal, what we find when we look at the cross is the world's greatest milestone for God's solution to save sinners and to make his world whole again. Let's pray. Our great God and King, you have seen our hearts. Lord, even the recesses. Lord, you know the darkness that lies within and the, the skeletons, Lord, that we've, we've tried to hide. Lord, all of those things that entangle us, that cause us shame, to allow us, to, that, 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 that are heavy upon us with our guilt, Lord, you have loosed those chains and broke those bonds. Lord, you were not afraid of what you found in the dark, but you have sent your Son to be a light, to expose it and to transform it. So, Lord, we know that we're still being transformed, Lord, and we long for the fullness of your grace and redemption in our lives. But, Lord, as we still struggle in the weight of a world that lives in the already and the not yet, 
Lord, help us to see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.